So we're going to listen together to God's word from Mark 3. So Mark 3 verses 1 to 12 this morning. So last week we also read verses 1 to 6, but the way that Mark has written his gospel, he wants us to consider the contrast between the religious establishment, and this is the showdown, the first six verses on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, and then this new thing that Jesus is doing, the coming of his new kingdom, as he takes his disciples out into the streets out by the Sea of Galilee and eventually onto a mountainside. It is really in with the new and out with the old, and so we've got to get a sense of the contrast. So we'll read 1 to 6 and 7 to 12. Uh, just now. Let me remind the children, I'd love to see your pictures and so parents if you manage to take a picture of what the children drew and if you're artistically minded as an adult, you please do draw something or write something or do something that that somehow captures this whole idea of, of out with the old and in with the new uh, as, we, uh, as we go through the text this morning. But now let's listen to God's word before we, um, before we carry on any further. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked round at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored, not just healed, restored. Reminding us of the language we've heard earlier, that God is restoring this broken world that we live in. He's making things new. He restores the man's hand. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udemia and from beyond and from when the great, great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready, uh, a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We thank God for his living, active word. Let me just pray before we jump in to try and make sense, more sense of what the Lord has told us in his word. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now asking that you will send your Holy Spirit as we consider your word. Thank you that we have your word and thank you that we're able to study your word in our own language. Not only that, we're able to study your word in the original languages through which you gave it to us, your people. And we thank you, Father, that we have all the modern technology being able to, to read your word in printed Bibles, to read your word on apps and on phones, to read and listen to your word being read uh, over the internet or over, over um, other means. We're just so thankful, Father, that you've given us your word. And we ask that we will, we will dig, dig deep into it and dwell richly in your word, that we will we'll let your word swirl around our heads and in our thoughts 
and that as he does, it would bring fruit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to um, uh, give you a little bit of an outline to what I'm about to say. I'm not sure I'll follow the outline exactly as it's there, but the chief question I'm going to ask you this morning is, why are you pursuing Jesus? It's a why question. Why are you pursuing Jesus? Now, of course, it it assumes that you are pursuing Jesus. I'm assuming that simply because you might be watching this live feed this morning. Uh, you perhaps are a member of the church or, or, uh, or you're someone that's interested in Christianity. I'm, I'm thinking that if you're spending your time doing this, you are indeed pursuing Jesus. Uh, my question this morning is why? Why are you doing this? Because in the passage we've just read, we'll, we'll see at least two motives for following Jesus or pursuing Jesus that are both false and true at the right time, right and wrong at the same time. So why are you pursuing Jesus? First point I'll make is out with the old and in with the new. Second point, Jesus, the true disruptor. And then thirdly, it's almost it's almost the title of an Abba song. Knowing me and knowing you. I shouldn't sing, I shouldn't sing. Knowing him, knowing you, knowing yourself. Knowing him, knowing yourself. It, it goes back and forth between those two things. Knowing him, knowing yourself. So let's uh, jump in with the introduction. Out with the old and in the new. I'll leave that slide up, but Stefani will probably now put me big screen. Okay, there's no slide anyway. Good. Out with the old and in with the new. Change is a difficult thing to, to navigate. I think as families and as households, we have found change quite difficult to navigate during this lockdown period. Not sure how to change and what needs to change and how we'll do this change. I know of those that have started to homeschool their children all of a sudden because uh, of the new circumstances, all the change that involves with that. For those of you that started to work from home or work from bed, uh, as the case might be, you've had to, to, to learn new habits. And so change was involved in, in, in adapting. And I think the government is, is, is well aware that there's a, there's a new change that's coming and it's getting out of lockdown. You think it was hard to get into lockdown. I think it's going to be far harder to get out of lockdown. And so there's a lot of change ahead for all of us as, um, as things stand. Um, but, but how does change happen? There's some uh, books written about change, some seminal works on um, leading change. I can't remember the author of that book now, but I remember reading it many years ago. And, and I think he, he, he outlined seven uh, great things that any manager or leader needs to do to lead change in an organization. Um, and one of them is you need, to, you need to have change champions. You need to have people that can lead the change knowing that this change is urgent and important, it needs to happen. Now that's what's happened with us when all of a sudden we had a, a change agent or a disruptor in the form of coronavirus. It was a disruptor that forced change upon all of us and it disturbed the way we do things uh, as, a, as, as, as a church, as households, as, as a country and as a, as a world. And so change was sort of forced upon us by this disruptor. And history is littered with disruptors. Um, we can think of uh, religious or spiritual just disruptors, um, and uh, some of that might be to do with, uh, with the Reformation, with Martin Luther uh, and John Calvin, who came to disrupt things. Uh, let me just uh, speak to Rachel. Can you... You're going to kick the camera, my love. 
so the change that needs to happen is a, is a big deal. It, it came through people like Martin Luther um, and John Calvin, uh, William Tyndale and uh, John Wycliffe, John Owen, uh, that, that brought change by disrupting the religious spiritual church set up uh, in Europe and in, the, in, the, in England. Uh, in modern history, we had uh, disruptors in the form of, uh, of uh, uh, disruptors uh, in technology, in the form of people like, like Elon Musk. I mean, yesterday, perhaps many of us saw the first uh, human uh, space flight undertaken, both by the private sector and uh, a government, as they sent up uh, those two men to the space station. It's just remarkable how these people were these disruptors that brought about great change. And every time people, disruptors, uh, appear on the scene, what they do is they force you to compare what has been to what is going to be. Uh, so in the case of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other reformers, there was a sharp contrast between what the church looked like throughout the Middle Ages the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and the church after it's been changed by, by the reformers. And, and, and you could get a sense of those churches by attending and visiting these new reformed churches all over Europe, and as did it spread from there all over the world. You, you could compare the old with the new. Similarly, we can do the same as we compare perhaps disruptors in the banking sector, like Monzo and Starling and other uh, digital banks like that, where you perhaps see just how much uh, lighter they can be, how quicker, how nimble they can be, because they're not encumbered by, by uh, heritage uh, systems that they have to maintain uh, as the whole bank developed. They, they sort of leapfrogged over all of that. But you can compare the old with the new. And so out with the old and in with the new could be a slogan that we can take hold of as we get to this passage where Jesus, we find him in the synagogue. He is right there in the synagogue and he is busy, uh, he's busy showing the contrast, sharply showing the contrast between the way that he will do things and the way that the Pharisees did those, their things at the time. And perhaps one of the chief things you can see is, is the sharp contrast between uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus when it comes to what is allowed or permissible to be done on the Lord's Day. It's Jesus' own question that he asks. He asks the question, uh, so what should be done on uh, the Lord's Day? Is it permissible uh, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And that's how Jesus, that's a question that he puts on the ground for them to compare the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. And, 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 and quickly we see that the old way of doing things is, is in, not just impractical, it's wrong, it's wicked, it's, it's evil. Because it leads the Pharisees to then listen to Jesus, see him yield the man with a withered land, a hand, and then as they go out, they then say in verse 10, they are not verse 10, in verse 6, uh, and they went and held counsel with the Herodians. That's their chief uh, nemesis. It is, it is their opponents, their political opponents for the, for the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They go to the opposition and they unite together on the Lord's Day to do what? Well, on the Sabbath to do what? To decide to kill, to decide to destroy. This is the old way of doing things. 
And whenever the old has to make way for the new, there are these disruptors that bring in the new. But you can see, you get a sense of the new as you compare the two with each other. And we are forced to do that. As Jesus shows that he came to heal and to restore. That's what he is all about. So he leaves the synagogue. He leaves the synagogue. And where we find him next is we find him uh, by the Sea of Galilee where it all started. And that's my second point is Jesus is the true disruptor. He returns to uh, the place where he's called his disciples. Remember how he walked by the Sea of Galilee and, and called the fishermen to follow him. And they just dropped whatever they did and they followed Jesus. And, um, and Jesus' main technology that he brings with him as he introduces a disruption is quite surprising. You could say that the, the new technology that brought the disruption of the Reformation to its full flowering was the, the Gutenheim press gutenberg. gutenberg press of course why do i yeah the gutenberg press there was a p a piece of technology that that made it work we could say that cryptocurrencies had as their they weren't as disruptive as i think people thought but they had as their chief technology blockchain technology and and that would bring the disruption you could say that Elon Musk has the technology uh, in his hands to reuse rockets, to not just discard them after use, but get them to land on drone ships that's out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and so saving a lot of money. That's the technology that they brought with them. And that's how they drove their change. And so the question is, what is the technology? What is the key thing that Jesus brought with him to be this disruptor? that disrupted the religious market of the day? Was it his ability to heal or his ability to drive out demons? Was it, was it his, um, his authority, his compassion? What is it that he brought? And the answer to those questions is yes. It's all of those things. Why? Because Jesus didn't bring something as he disrupted the way that things were. He was someone that disrupted the way things were. And this requires a response from all of us. How will we treat Jesus if that is going to be the case? Do we just treat Jesus for what he can do? Or do we treat Jesus for who he is? Now, you've got to be careful. Yeah, there's something cool about... Um, no, let me not make that point. Just I'll, I'll come back to that point in a minute. But, but just see that all disruptors had this, this new thing that they would bring. And that, that really drew a crowd. That drew people to them because they had this new thing. And so people came. And, and we've got to be careful that that's not the reason that we follow Jesus is because of what he can do for us. Now, we've got to contrast two things. And I said at the beginning that these two ways of following Jesus, following Jesus because of what he can do or following Jesus for who he is, are both right and wrong at the same time. And so let's just think through that for a minute. Now, it's almost obviously wrong that the crowd that followed Jesus followed Jesus. Why? Because he healed their diseases. You can see that Jesus withdrew with his disciples, but this crowd just followed him. And this crowd followed him, verse 10 says, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They were desperate to have a piece of Jesus' healing, this miracle worker. They followed Jesus. That's what the text wants to say over and over again because of what he could do for them. Now, we look at this and 
for us it's almost obviously wrong but you've got to ask yourself is this not why you are following Jesus for what he can do for you is Jesus just sort of a magic gene in a bottle that comes out whenever you're in trouble and so you sort of keep your options open by keeping Jesus in your life and you you hope to call on him if the wheels start to come off in your life or if something becomes difficult in your life is that why you're pursuing Jesus for what he can do for you even as I say this you you, you know that that that's wrong and and you know that that's not the right way to authentically deal with any other human being uh, even more so with the creator of the universe following Jesus or being in a relationship with anyone for what they can do it just just sits wrong with us <clears throat> but you've got to see that you're not above this you're also prone to treat Jesus like this and the sad reality is you also treat those that you love that's around you like this often now that's one wrong way of treating Jesus and other people in our lives and so we think oh the opposite then must be true don't don't follow Jesus don't pursue Jesus for what he can do follow Jesus for who he is and you think oh that is I'll be on my on my high horse as I make these statements about these poor people that's following Jesus for what he can do for them no no follow him for who he is you say sanctimoniously those unfortunately have been on the lips of the church for a long time to sort of bring this dichotomy and it's not entirely false but but there's a mistake here because you see that's exactly what the demons did that's exactly what the demons did in the passage as you read it you'll see that the demons they portray that same story 4 verse 11 says whenever the unclean spirit saw him they fell down before him and cried out you are the son of God so you've got to take this it's just not enough to say well I know who Jesus is he is the son of God he is the second person of the Trinity He is God the Son and you know I know that to be true this passage is is going to challenge you because it is simply saying that that, that is also not the right response to Jesus just to know it intellectually that he is the Son of God no the right action the right response to Jesus is to fall down and worship him and when you have done that you are saying that I've not just found Jesus useful I've not just found Jesus comprehensible son of God but I found Jesus beautiful I found him beautiful I'm awestruck by his beauty in every single way See, that's how Jesus is the true disruptor. And that's why it is, it is not entirely wrong to follow Jesus because he can do stuff for you, because he can. And it's not entirely wrong to follow Jesus for who he is, because he is who he is. Uh, but it's also not entirely right only to follow him for what he can do and only to follow him for who he is. You've got to bring all of those things together and fall on your knees and worship him because he is beautiful. What do I mean with that? We watched, uh, uh, we recently watched one of the Antique Roadshow episodes where Fiona Bruce are presented with three vases that she needs to decide which one is uh, uh, good, better, best. Is that the three categories that they have? And so she has to look at these three vases that's on pedestals and the antique specialist is right there. Uh, and she goes to a, a really big, beautiful uh, uh, pot 
which was made 3,500 years ago, and it looks impressive. It is unchipped, uh, it is big, it is useful. You can imagine it being in your house and you can fill it with water and you go water plants with it. It can even be a water jug on your table. It is just useful. The, the next one <clears throat> was a smaller, more delicate one, also around 3,000 years old. And it had fine painting on it, uh, exquisite work in great, uh, in great condition without a nick on it. It just looked delicate and beautiful and useful as it happens. Uh, and next to it, there was a lump. Just that it looked like the lump of, of marble or alabaster. Yeah, alabaster. And it was still dirty. And, um, and you could see it going through the motions because this thing wasn't useful. It was dirty, it was chipped, it was cracked. It was almost as old as all the other bits and pieces, uh, the two other vases that were on there. And she's going through and thinking, oh, hang on, no, I know what you're going to say. It is the ugly, filthy one. That's the one that's worth the most. And so, okay, that's the one approach. And, and the delicate, beautiful one, well, everyone will say that one is the, the worth the most, but I'm going to say that one is the least. And the big pot, well, I think that's in the middle. And then she went back and said, no, no, but the big pot, because it's really useful in great condition. I can imagine people are buying it. And the lump is so ugly, no one will do anything with that. And she's just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until everyone is completely confused. And eventually um, the antiques dealer reveals which one is worth the most. And I think the big... The big useful one was worth 150 pounds, which is a lot of money as it is. The small decorative one was worth five or 600 pounds, beautiful as it was, but the lump was worth two or 3,000. And, uh, and you can almost feel how the crowd that was standing behind Fiona Bruce was just, all of a sudden, they just looked with new admiration at this dirty lump of alabaster on its pedestal, where they just suddenly thought, oh, it's precious. Oh, be careful. Don't knock it over. That's suddenly what people start to think when it has this value. And I think there's some connections here with what needs to happen as we look at Jesus. Jesus is beautiful. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our admiration. He is worthy of our affection. He is beautiful not only because he's useful, but because he is who he is. But he's worthy of praise and affection and admiration, not just because of who he is, but also of what he can do for us. You remember, this is why Jesus came. He came in order to give life to those that were living in darkness, those that were dead. That's what he came to do. And his act of restoring the man with whose hand was, was withered was a precursor, was a foretaste of what he can do. He can change everything and make it new. So worship Him for all that He can do and all the newness that, that falls as gifts out of His hands. And then also worship God. Worship Jesus for who He is, the Son of God. Even the demons would say that, but they don't worship Him. Worship Him and enjoy Him as you begin to see who He really is. Now that brings me to my third point, knowing Him knowing yourself. It is hard to find ourselves in this crowd uh, that is around Jesus at this point. I think we're quick to say that we're not the Pharisees in the synagogue, which we shouldn't be so quick to say because I think there is more of the Pharisees in us than we'd like to admit. Following Jesus because we are good and right and educated and this or that or the other. We, we have all kinds of badges that goes with those that follow Jesus as part of the religious establishment. And we look down our noses on those that don't. 
we need to repent of that. In that statement, in that whole pharisaical view of, uh, way of viewing things, is just a multitude of a multitude of sins just wrapped up. And then we think, well, if we're not the Pharisees, or we repented of that, then we say, well, then we're the crowd following Jesus. But, but there's also something that needs repenting of. Uh, and that is that the crowd was following Jesus just for what he could do for them. They were treating Jesus as a butler, not as a Lord. And it's only when they start to get to know who he is, that the real change can start to happen. So... Knowing him, you'll start to know yourself. Now, I've got a little illustration. I'm not sure it's a good illustration, but I'm going to try it anyway because it's a difficult thing I want to bring across. You see, something happened when Jesus rebuked the demon so sternly. Now, on the face of it, we, we sort of read over that fairly quickly. We see the demons cry out, oh, you're the son of God. And then before really taking that in, what the scene is, we immediately hear Jesus say, he sternly commanded them to keep quiet. And, and we don't think about what's just happened. We just think, why is he telling them to be quiet? I mean, surely if they are going ahead and telling people that he is the Son of God, people might kind of be disrupted and think that Jesus is the Son of God and really start to listen. So it might be useful if Jesus wanted to raise a crowd, if there's these demon-possessed men that are fearful of him and shouting that he is the Son of God. And so we, we're busy with that little question all the time. But, but Jesus uses this in a... Very interesting way. Now imagine for a moment I'm out at the park. Now, we have a dog. At the moment our dog is trying to sniff through the fence to catch the foxes on the other side. She, she can be a bit um, disobedient. And I imagine I go to the park with this dog of ours and uh, instead of keeping her on the leash as I should, I take her off the leash. And she runs around and people are having picnics in groups of six while carefully maintaining two meter distancing rules and all of that. But this dog is creating havoc, stealing people's pork pies and running around with people's balls and making a mess and barking. And quickly I decide the easiest thing to do is just to pretend as if it's not my dog. So I take my leash, my leash and I just kind of hide it in my pocket and I just gently buzz off hoping that the dog will eventually come home and I just leave it. And people are shouting at the dog for it to go away. Shout, and no one is able to control this dog because this dog is all over the place. And then the next moment, this dog runs up to me to come and be disobedient around me. And I just say a word like, stop it. And immediately the dog stops and just sits neatly next to me. You can imagine how the whole Russia Dog Woodlands will just look at me with, why are you able to control this dog? What's that in your pocket? Is that, is that her lead? You said she's not your dog, but look at that. She listens to you. No, no, hang on. There's something going on. And that's sort of the thing that I think we need to get in our heads at this stage is that when Jesus rebuked the demons, he was clearly showing to the world that he had authority over them. That he had authority over them. It, it, was, it was not an explicit way of showing it, but it was an implicit way. The fact that they didn't just shut up because Jesus said it, must have, must have shook the crowd when they realized that this is who Jesus is. Now, my point here is, is knowing Jesus, knowing yourself. Uh, the more you know Jesus to be the one who has authority over these dark forces in this way, the, know you'll come, the more you'll come to know that, ye, that you are one who is under his authority, that, that he can instruct your soul. And next week you'll see when Carl's preaching, Jesus calls the disciples up to a mountain and it just says there in, in, I think, verse 13, and he called the twelve and they came. We've heard this before, where Jesus just calls people and they come. 
That's part of what the Lord of the universe can do. With just his mere words, he instructs something in creation and they follow. Because that's who he is. And so if that is who he is, who are you? You are a defined creature, not a defining creature. You have been defined by this God to be who you are. And, and you need to find yourself in this crowd, I would want to propose this morning. I would say you need to find yourself in this crowd as those people that's coming to Jesus with, with wrong motives, for the wrong reasons. And, and you are pushing in on Jesus. It's a strange scene that's playing off there. The crowds came from these towns that are mentioned. But if you go and plot these towns out on a map, you'll see in the ancient Near East, it's north, east, south and west. People came from all of the regions around the, uh, where Jesus was to come and follow him. This is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that God will draw, will call these children from the north, east, south and west, wherever they've been scattered. And so Jesus calls the people to himself. And as they come, these people diseased and sickly, they act towards Jesus like sheep act towards a shepherd who has food and they are in drought. Can you just imagine? Jesus feels, he feels threatened by them. It, I, I don't want to use the word threatened really, but I, I do want to say that he, I mean, look, look again at the passage and you'll see what Jesus says. It was a great crowd that followed him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready. Why? Because... The crowd was about to crush him. And so Jesus gets on the boat. Why? Because people with diseases were pressing in around him to touch him. You can see just people just blinded by the fact that he could heal them. And they like sheep just push, push, push. Just unthinkingly just push to get in. Push to get to Jesus. Just push, push, push to get. Knowing him, knowing yourself. Let us not have inflated views about ourselves. Jesus is who we said he is. He is God the Son. And we should come to him. We should come to him as stupid sheep that are hungry and thirsty for him. I, how I can, how can I preach this to you so that you will really hear this in your heart of hearts? I, I, I don't know, but all I know is that one of the ways that you know you're not treating Jesus as if he is God the Son and you are a stupid sheep that need to press in to follow him is the way that we treat his word, his Bible. And um, it was very interesting. I don't know how many, how many famous uh, Christian uh, gospel singers have, have apostatized the faith uh, over the last six or eight months, but I, I know there's been a number of big names that have turned away from, from Christ. Um, and it is our friend, it is David Robertson, that recently mentioned, and I just need to get that quote. <laughs> so this might need explanation afterwards. But he was reading a sermon by Richard Sibbs. Um, he, he, it's his fifth sermon in a series uh, uh, that he was preaching. Um, and Richard Sibbs, 1639 uh, is when he preached the sermon. The title of the sermon was, Bowels opened, bowels opened, and uh, it's a strange title for a uh, for a sermon. But 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 his point was that many of the people that apostatize, that turn away from Jesus, is because they've not treated God's word as the very word of life. So here's an excerpt from that sermon, bowels open. Let me just an explanation of that title. He was his point was that we don't feel 
faith in our hearts. We like to say it's in our hearts, but really we feel it in our guts. We feel it in our stomach. We, we feel it kind of in here when, when we come close to the Lord. A bit like you do when you go into a strange house you've never seen before and you're lurking around. You just feel, feel like that. It's, our heart is, a, is an expression of the Old Testament where the person's, person's personality is seated. But I think in our guts is where we feel things. And so, so he says, if we should ask the reason why there are so many that apostatize. Now, this is Richard Sibbs, 1639, or fall away, or grow profane, and are so unfruitful under the gospel, notwithstanding that they continue to hear as much as they do, the answer is, their souls were never founded and bottomed upon this, that the word of God and divine truth have been felt by experience to be the voice of Christ. They were never persuaded from inbred arguments that the voice of Christ is the word of God. Others who were strictly brought up are now profane because they were never convinced by the power and majesty of the truth in itself. And then in the end they despair notwithstanding all the promises because they were never convinced of the truth of them. They cannot say Amen to all the promises. And so this is a little diagnostic that you need to take home for yourself to say, okay, so do I need to know, how do I respond to Jesus, the Lord of the universe? I need to respond to him as a stupid sheep that is hungry and thirsty, and I'm just going to press in to eat. Go and watch some Sean the sheep, and don't think you're Sean. You're not Sean. You, you are, you're some of the other sheep there that's constantly acting like sheep. And, and just imagine how you're constantly pushing in because you're hungry. And how will you do that? You're only doing that if you're convinced that Jesus is the one who has the word of life. That Jesus' words, his very words, are the words of life that can feed and nourish your soul. It's only as you treat the Bible as God's word speaking to you, Christ himself speaking to you, that you will start to see him for who he is. I've got two more things to say, then I'm done. Uh, the first thing is be very aware of this false sense of humility that can easily sway you in following Jesus. It, you might even think it sounds a little bit cool to be a misfit and a weirdo, to be a stupid sheep just following Jesus. I know this because that was one of that was the heart of Steve Jobs, that old disruptor of the phone industry's sort of outlook on life. Uh, he ran an ad campaign with these words. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. Be very, very careful to sort of take this alternative identity of being misfit and say oh yeah but that's that's what's giving me i'll change the world as a misfit as a weird i mean we all know that was the the basis of uh, dominic cummings advert a while ago when he was saying we need some true wild cards artists people who never went to university and fought their way out of an appalling hellhole weirdos from william gibson novels and so on he was appealing to the weirdos to the people that's a bit on the edge and and you can think that this is what christianity is we're actually the in crowd because we're all out no, 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 no. You're not hearing what this passage is saying. It is just saying the view that you have of yourself, if you want to sort of 
delib dress deliberately ironically by wearing a beanie hat and slacks when you're working in number 10 or you're deliberately trying to be weird because you're in that's not what this is about following jesus being a disciple of jesus is about knowing that he is the son of god and knowing that you need him and you then fall down and worship him and in some cultures you might look like a misfit and a weirdo and in some cultures you might like look like the king's assistant that's irrelevant follow god because of who jesus is and what he can do for you because why and that's my last point why what can he do jesus came to change things we are not changing things jesus is the one changing thing his technology is not the church his new thing is not this or that or the other. jesus is changing things and how do we know that well you'll see as we read uh, mark 3 carry on yes what jesus brought brought in he challenged the religious establishment by bringing in something new. You say, yeah, I know what he brought. He brought a kingdom. Yeah, you're right. He did bring a kingdom, but it's so much more than a kingdom that he brought in. You say, okay, okay, hang on, hang on. Towards the end of chapter three, you'll see Jesus speaks about family. He, he didn't just bring a kingdom. He brought a new family. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He also did that. It's not just a new kingdom, a new religious order, a new kingdom, a, a new family. It's more than that. Now you see what Jesus brought in is a new you. That's what Jesus, that is, the, that is the genius of what Jesus came to do. He himself is the one that's inaugurating a renewal of all things. And he's starting, even as I'm speaking, even as we're reading God's word, he's starting with us. And he's making us new from the inside out. We are his workmanship. And so this is why we need to live by this spirit that was poured out in Pentecost. Because this is how we show to the world what it means to follow Jesus. Not because he's useful, not because he is who he is, but because he is beautiful. We worship him in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is in with the new and out with the old. It is the beginning of uh, the renewal of all things that Christ started in, uh, in all of us. My prayer is... That you will find increasingly in your heart a new delight, a new sense of beauty. That you will be like a blind man that can suddenly see or a deaf man that can suddenly hear. Like a man who attends an antiques roadshow and suddenly can see which things have value and which things don't. I pray that that is what you'll experience. And you'll start to worship Jesus as you follow him as beautiful and worthy of all your praise. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come to this part of our service where we respond to your word. And we are going to, we're going to respond by giving gifts. We're going to respond by saying confessions. We're going to respond by considering, perhaps if you're not believers, the claims of Christ for the first time. Please, would you take hold of our hearts? Please, let us not now dwell on what is to come after the service, but let us dwell on our response. As we quietly now take... 25 seconds to consider how we will respond to all we've heard. Lead us through your spirit. Pour out your spirit on us, your church, to hear you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.